0: Welcome to Tisky Sour. Our show tonight is structured around good guys and bad guys. Bad guys, three of them Dominic Cummings, Boris Johnson, and Jeffrey Epstein. I don't have a story which connects all three. They're going to be somewhat separate, interesting stories nonetheless. Three legends Bella, Gigi Hadid, and Dua Lipa. They've been smeared in the New York Times for speaking out for Palestine. We are joined by navara media resident legend ash sarkar how are you doing
1: am i a good guy or a bad guy
0: you're legendary and that can be ambiguous
1: (laughs) okay like maleficent
0: yeah no i think you're you're a good guy you're a good guy honestly you know i think that since leaving downing street dominic cummings has made it his mission to undermine the credibility of his former boss So far, that's come in the form of briefings to newspapers, including the claim that Boris Johnson pledged to let the bodies pile high in their thousands instead of implementing a third lockdown. It's also come in a blog post where Cummings made allegations about Johnson trying to block a leak inquiry into a friend of his wife and his sourcing of private donors to pay for fancy wallpaper for his Downing Street flat. However, Whilst these briefings were difficult, they could all be thoroughly eclipsed by evidence Dominic Cummings will be giving on Wednesday to a Commons Select Committee. It's going to be three hours. He said he's going to say it how it is when it comes to Boris Johnson's handling of coronavirus, especially in those first weeks. Um everything is suggesting he's going to be quite candid here now that will be i'm sure our headline show for wednesday's show what we have for you today though is a 55 tweet long mega thread um, which dominic cummings has been putting out in preparation now i think this is mainly to kind of plant questions for the mps he wants to put some you know topics of controversy out there and he's saying maybe push me on these topics and i'll dish the real dirt but there's a fair amount of dirt in there anyway now you know Dominic cummings he's someone who is he's got a big ego so a lot of this is him trying to uh vindicate himself say look the government were the civil service were idiots boris johnson was an idiot matt hancock was an idiot i was right the whole time i don't think we should necessarily trust his motivations here but he does say quite a lot of interesting things and he does give some very interesting evidence, which is the most important thing here. So this 55 tweet long mega thread, which you can find, I do recommend reading it all. It's nothing if not interesting. Um, Some of the ground it covers, it gives a big defense of lockdowns. So it's sort of a bit of a a dig. Uh, Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak for resisting a lockdown the second time around, complains about the mediocrity of the civil service, the kind of thing we hear from from Dominic Cummings quite a lot, and argues the government should be more transparent in parts of the thread. He sounds a bit like me back in March 2020. 20. But the most striking parts of the FRED critique the dishonesty of the government when it came to their original herd immunity plan and the gullibility of our mainstream press for believing the lie that they'd never adopted it. Now, you remember at the start of March, the government adopted a herd immunity plan, which was to say there's no point in trying to stop this virus spreading. We're just going to have to let it spread through the population at a at a manageably slow rate. That's what flatten the curve meant. It said, Instead of having a, a very big instant spike, what we'll try and do is, is flatten the curve over a three-month period so that everyone essentially gets COVID, but they get it slow enough that hospitals don't get overwhelmed they then had a dramatic u-turn when they realized that you know the general public weren't comfortable with quite that many people dying so maybe maybe we should do something a bit more extreme than just let it slowly spread through the population anyway the press believed oh the science had changed the u-turn wasn't a real u-turn it was just that the government are responding to to new scientific evidence dominic cummings is saying that's all absolutely bullshit this is the key tweet when it comes um, to these claims about herd immunity so cummings writes Media generally abysmal on COVID, but even I've been surprised by one thing. How many hacks have parroted Hancock's line that herd immunity wasn't the plan when herd immunity by September was literally the official plan in all docs, graphs, meetings until it was ditched. Yes, the media is often incompetent, but something deeper is at work. Much of SW1 was happy to believe Hancock's bullshit, that it's not the plan, so they didn't have to face the shocking truth. Most political hacks believe in the system. So very harsh words. So he was saying herd immunity was literally the plan when Matt Hancock said it wasn't. And then all the, the pestons, the Koonsbergs of the world, they all swallowed it. He's saying that's ridiculous. These people were kidding themselves because they wanted to believe in the system and ended up you know, repeating a lie to the general public and um, he goes on to be very damning about the morality of number 10 when it comes to this lie he says number 10 decided to lie herd immunity has never been part of our coronavirus strategy very foolish and appalling ethics to lie about it so it was, that was a quote herd immunity has never been part of our coronavirus strategy now the right line would have been what the pm knows is true our original plan was wrong and we changed when we realized So he goes on, lots of hacks have lost their mind. Herd immunity wasn't a secret strategy. It was the official public strategy explained on TV radio. Now Halpin on Sage literally explained it on the radio um, explicitly on the 11th of March, as did others. Now you remember we showed that clip I say you remember, you might remember we showed that clip back in March 2020. That was when a key member of SAGE, who was head of the behavioural unit, said essentially what we need to do is let everyone catch this slowly so that we don't get a second peak. Then Matt Hancock said, oh, it wasn't actually the plan. We never had herd immunity as a plan. They actually still say that. Dominic Cummings is basically blowing the lid on that. He's saying this is ridiculous. We kind of already knew this, but it's potentially interesting and meaningful that a key top advisor to Boris Johnson is now saying it and is going to come with the receipts, even though, as I say, many of these receipts were already public. Ash, how significant is this latest chapter in Dominic Cummings going to war with his old boss?
1: Okay, so a lot of the stuff that's being said here was already in the public domain. So we did see Halpern on TV talking about herd immunity. We did read that Robert Peston piece where he was saying that this is the core of the government's strategy. Peston, we know, won't put out an opinion piece like that unless he's got senior sources from within the government saying that that is the case. So all this stuff was public knowledge. It's just that there was a very pliant media which was actively in invested in papering over this abomination that essentially the government calculated that coronavirus would be much like the flu. You would suppress the virus, but not eliminate it. And ultimately, that's how we would get through the worst of the pandemic. We know now that that was utterly reckless and it resulted in at least tens of thousands of unnecessary deaths. What's interesting about Cummings is that On the one hand, he's got utter disdain for the institutions that he has most relied on for access to power, those being the government, the party political system, but also Westminster lobby media. So got utter disdain for these people, but ultimately they still quite like him because he provides good entertainment. And because he comes from within Tory party circles, though obviously not a Tory party member himself, but because he's aligned with the right... He's seen as somehow being more authoritative than someone who is an ideological opponent. And I think that that's why Dominic Cummings, even though so far he's not telling us so much that we didn't know already, but adding flesh and meat and content to stories that were already out there, then that can be dangerous for Boris Johnson. Because Dominic Cummings is somebody who time and time again has proved that he's very adept at setting the Westminster news agenda. And he can really set lobby journalists running like hounds after a hare.
0: Absolutely. I mean, The danger as well isn't necessarily just for Boris Johnson, because Dominic Cummings is really going for everyone. And as I say, this is partly, I think, to say, look, I was right all along. That catastrophe that happened in March when the government looked at Italy where the bodies were starting to pile up where they'd had a lockdown looking at France looking at actually the whole of Europe where they'd implemented a lockdown and British scientists British government were still saying no a lockdown would be pointless it's it would only be putting it off we'd get a bigger peak in in the winter we're just going to have to take the the tens of thousands of deaths or hundreds of thousands of deaths in in fact um he's saying even though I was the top advisor at that point that was nothing to do with me that was all the other idiots Um, who tried to pursue that strategy. Let's look through some of the idiots he's blaming um, for us pursuing that strategy. Obviously, as well, it's worth noting, we abandoned the herd immunity strategy, but we did abandon it quite late. And one of the big reasons why there were why we had such a bad first wave was because we abandoned the herd immunity strategy so late. Obviously, most of our deaths are in the second and third wave. That wasn't a failure of science, that was a failure of Boris Johnson. Um, but this is focusing in particular on that first wave. When it comes to the original decision to pursue herd immunity, Dominic Cummings blames Matt Hancock and the civil service. He writes, In that week, it became clear neither Hancock or the cabinet office understood herd immunity effects. Hundreds of thousands choking to death, no NHS for anybody for months, dead unburied, economic implosion. So we moved to plan B, suppression, Manhattan Project for drugs, vaccines, test and trace, et cetera. So plan B is the one he's really associating himself with Manhattan Project for drugs, vaccines. That's exactly what he's really, really into. Um, Let's go on to the next one. Critical as I am of the Prime Minister in all sorts of ways, it's vital to understand that disaster was not just his fault. The official plan was disastrously misconceived. The Department for Health and Social Care and the Cabinet Office did not understand this or why, and a Plan B had to be bodged amid total and utter chaos. It's the Cabinet Office, the Department for Health and Social Care, he's really having a go out there, Matt Hancock, the next person he's got it in for, And to be honest, I do think some of this is is very much justified, is Jenny Harris. She's the deputy chief medical officer of her, he writes. Jenny Harris told us the same week herd immunity was the official plan. Masks are a bad idea. We don't want to disrupt people's lives. Acting too early, we will just pop up with another epidemic peak later. So Whitehall has promoted her, obviously. Now, I actually think this is a very fair point because of the people who chatted complete nonsense at the start of this pandemic and also, you know, nonsense in a way where they're like, no, this don't listen. Don't listen to the to the naysayers. We don't need a lockdown. We don't even need to test. She said we don't need to test many people because we're not a third world country at one point. Completely bizarre. She has now been promoted to become chief executive of the UK Health Security Agency. So that's going to be taking basically overall responsibility for things like future pandemics. She's also now head of NHS tested Trace. So I do think he's got a point there that the people who got everything wrong have been promoted. One other thing he provides, and I say this is, you know, some of this is him rewriting history, but what will be most interesting to come out of this war of Dominic Cummings against Boris Johnson is the concrete bits of evidence he has. Because whether or not you trust Dominic Cummings, it doesn't matter when it's, you know, written down and it's a it's a bit of paper that was being discussed at the time. Now, there are a couple of these in his Twitter thread. So previously unpublished um, COBRA documents. So COBRA, that's the the committee where all the top people in government get together and look at emergencies. So some of the the SAGE minutes have been published. Not all of the COBRA documents have. Now, the two I'm going to show you are both from the week of the 9th of March. Um, so the first shows you graph which is very similar actually to one we showed you back in March 2020 but ours was um, derived from Newsnight because clearly someone at Newsnight had been briefed about this but it wasn't published and what this shows you is how the government um, back in March were assuming that it would be impossible to suppress the virus and keep it low until vaccines and they say well if you've got early suppression you're clearly going to get this second peak because no one's immune what they were going for is is the red line which is the, the flatten the curve strategy more interesting than that is the graph which showed the numbers they were assuming in their original scenario, in their original best case scenario. It's important to remember that. Here they're modelling how many people will die. And they've said in the do nothing scenario, so if the, the government did absolutely nothing, half a million people would die, 510,000 people would die. In the, And this is important, the optimal single peak strategy, which included case isolation, home quarantine. So that's only home quarantine when you've, when someone in the household has been tested positive and social distancing only for people who are over seventy, we would have two hundred and fifty nine thousand deaths Now, you remember at the time, and this is actually something I went on loads about back in March, which is that when the strategy was changed, so when we moved away from herd immunity, everyone. Reported, oh, the reason we've moved away from herd immunity is because there's a new model, and there's a new model which suggests that over hundreds of thousands of people could could die if we pursue this strategy. What was never made clear is when they decided to go down the herd immunity strategy. When Boris Johnson, you remember, stood at the the Lexington and said many of your loved ones will die, no one ever asked and got to the bottom of what was their original plan. How many people did they originally plan would die? And that's what Dominic Cummings here is for the first time revealing that the original plan. And that doesn't say they didn't want these people to die but the original plan involved 259,000 people dying in the optimal best case scenario so completely bonkers and the science didn't change there so what changed is that their plan was to you know go on kind of as normal herd immunity by september 250,000 people will die then what happened was a massive backlash people were like oh i'm not really sure about this whole we all get covid-19 and then many of our family members die maybe we should now, do something a bit more proactive, which was the lockdown, which is how um, you know that policy changed. Ultimately, we were never told that the original plan was that two hundred and sixty thousand people would die. Um, when it comes to how the policy changed, this is probably the most telling tweet from Cummings. Fred, I mean, it's also the last one we're going to show you from it. Um, if you're if you want to look at all fifty five, you're going to have to go to Twitter because that would take a whole show for us to go through all of them. But this is this is a very significant one. So Dominic Cummings writes, on the 14th of March, one of the things being screened at the prime minister was, quote, there is no plan for lockdown and our current official plan will kill at least 250,000 people and destroy the NHS. And then he refers to to the graph optimal single piece peak strategy with the free interventions I just I just talked about. That's household um, isolation. um, What was it? Individual quarantine and then social distancing for the over 70s. That was the official plan, which was abandoned. Now, as I say, none of this is surprising to me. This is all stuff that we guessed at the time. We sort of knew there was an imperial model that was sort of published mid-March that said, if we do nothing Basically, these numbers, half a million will die. If we do very minimal herd immunity strategies, 250,000 people will die. They said that was new in mid-March. This was published early March when it was still the plan. None of the journalists at those press conferences managed to get out of Boris Johnson because they didn't actually ask, in your original plan, how many people were you comfortable with dying? The answer here is 250,000 people. In their best case scenario, they had 259,000 people dying. So you look at our you know the death toll we have in this country, one hundred and thirty thousand on you know depending on what method you use to assess it, I think on excess deaths it's it's closer to one hundred and fifty thousand at this point in time. That's very bad. Now, compare that to most other countries in the world, very bad, especially most other you know wealthy countries in in most other medium sized countries in the world, very bad. It could have been worse if They'd kept to the original plan. The the original signed off plan would have had 100,000 extra people die, which is quite remarkable. And I mean, his point that this is a complete failure of not just Boris Johnson, but also the British establishment in a way, you know, it was the top scientists, the top civil servants, the top politicians. Everyone was saying, look, these whole lockdowns, these are sort of, these are kind of an East Asian thing you know, these compliant people, they might do this, but we can't do this. No one's ever going to stay at home. We're just going to have to accept the 250,000 people dying. You know, also we're we're grown up enough to know that sometimes people die. Uh, That was the original plan. Thank God they changed course, even though too late. And then they fucking didn't learn any lessons by September and January. The rest is history. But anyway, (laughs) um, I'm going to get myself in a in a little strop now. So, Ash, I'm going to pass to you. It is quite remarkable, isn't it? How many deaths were... Not conspirators, they didn't want them to die, but in their original plan, 250,000 people were going to die.
1: But already their idea of what it meant to have a good pandemic was worse than Italy, worse than Spain, worse than China, worse than countries which were a lot poorer than ours in the global south. That was their idea of doing well. So this I think hints at the completely delusional nature of British exceptionalism. Because on the one hand, we were gifted by chronology a head start on other countries. So we could see what was happening in Italy. We could see what was happening in Spain. And we saw what happened in China and how they responded to it. And our government, because of their attachment to these myths of, you know, British common sense and self-sufficiency, absolutely refused to do any of the things that would save lives because they were so wedded to a particular image of national identity. And that myth, that myth of who we are cost hundreds of thousands of lives. And I think that there's this thing of, you know, well, the Britain would, you know, the British would never, ever, um, you know, abide by lockdown. One, we did. And as a country, we were remarkably, uh, you know, compliant with lockdown rules and social distancing. Of course, there was some rule breaking and rule bending here and there. But ultimately, there was quite a lot of people sticking to the rules for quite a lot of the time. And two, what do you mean we're not a compliant society? The entire media got together in a conspiracy. This was years ago to tell us that Pippa Middleton had a good bum. And we as a country believed it. What does that tell you if not that we are sheep ready to be herded absolutely anywhere? And I think the third thing that's important to bear in mind is that we need to take Cummings's framing of this story with a hefty pinch of salt. Because we do also know that there are, you know, from Sunday Times reporting that there was something called the Domicine moment where initially he was keen on herd immunity. And then he heard some of the modelling from Sage and he was like, oh, no, no, that's actually disastrous. But what that does imply is that there was a moment where him and the other herd immunity ideologues in the government were of one mind and one purpose. So that is something which is being erased in this telling of the story. And then the second thing, which I think is also being erased, is that if you want to talk about the government telling lies, barefaced lies, to the British public absolutely shamelessly, well, one of the most absurd instances of, of that happening was being told that Somebody drove to Barnard Castle to test his eyesight. They was perfectly entitled, knowing that he and his wife had coronavirus, to go up to Durham and stay with his parents on a lovely country estate. So if we want to talk about the you know, dearth of honesty and integrity at the heart of government, that was absolutely something that he was up to the ballsack in the whole time.
0: He was up to the neck in all of all of this. Right. Yeah. I mean, up to the bull sack isn't even that high. You know, just, it's a bit, there was a few misdemeanors. No, he was up to his neck in this actually, much, <laughs> much higher than the bull sack. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. The guy doesn't have much credibility to be making these arguments, which means that what I'll be looking out for on Wednesday, which is when he's giving this evidence to the MPs, is not so much what is Dominic Cummings' analysis. What is Dominic Cummings' opinion when it comes to how Britain dealt with coronavirus? Because I think he's, you know, there's a lot of motivated reasoning going on here. My analysis is kind of, I think probably Dominic Cummings decided about two days earlier then the, then the policy changed that there should be herd immunity. He spent 40, 48 hours sort of saying, "No, oh, we probably should have a lockdown and abandon this strategy. And now he sort of expanded that 48 hours into a sort of two-month period whereby he always um, had, had this position and everyone was being an idiot for way, way longer than him, even though, you know, it's probably just a couple of days. September, January, potentially a different story. I do believe that by then, Dominic Cummings probably did want to take COVID more seriously. And it was, you know, especially... Boris Johnson, who was dragging his feet. Um, So that's actually where I think Boris Johnson as a person is on the weakest ground. We've got another bojo story for you. This one's uh, a lighter one. At the start of the coronavirus pandemic, Boris Johnson was asleep at the wheel. As cases were mounting and countries like Italy and France were locking down, Boris Johnson had already missed five Cobra meetings. And a remarkable story in the Sunday Times gives an incredible clue as to why. Now, the article is a preview of Dominic Cummings' session with the Science and Health Committee this week. And they write, officials in the Cabinet Office are concerned that Cummings will accuse Johnson of missing key meetings on the crisis because he was working on a biography of Shakespeare the money from which he needed to fund his divorce from Marina Wheeler, his second wife. Johnson missed five emergency meetings at the start of the crisis. So this is really, really wild. Now, again, this is another thing. We already knew he missed five COBRA meetings. i say COBRA meetings are the most important meetings, which brings together the top civil servants, the top people from government, the top scientific advisors, emergency planning, essentially. Now, when the COVID pandemic was It it was clear a pandemic was coming. He missed five meetings, asleep at the wheel. Now, to be honest, I have to say I'd I'd never, I just assumed he was kind of lazy, you know, that he just sort of didn't didn't fancy getting up in time. It turns out, according to this briefing, that what he was doing was writing a book about Shakespeare, a biography of Shakespeare, to fund a divorce with his or from his second wife, Ash. You did English literature. Does this make you have any more sympathy for the guy missing five Cobra meetings at the start of a coronavirus pandemic? Is this something you can imagine yourself doing? You know, no. It, it's breaking out. People are dying in China and Italy. Bodies are piling up. You're like, well, there's this chapter on Shakespeare. I just really need to get done.
1: To be fair, Shakespeare also did all of his best writing during a time of plague, but I don't think that he was, you know, in charge of the pandemic response at the time in Renaissance London. Um, also, there are plenty of biographies of Shakespeare. There doesn't need to be another one, essentially by a dilettante posho who knows some florid words but actually has got no critical thinking skills whatsoever. So let's just get the literary value of this book out the way. It has none. What it would be is a cash cow because Boris Johnson is one of you know the biggest names in the world, a huge scalp for any publishing house because that book will sell. It really will. And he sort of made his name by writing these deeply unserious texts, his awful novels, which are absolutely shot through with anti-Semitism and racism and also just absolutely torturous extended metaphors. Um you know, this is something that he's done. He's, you know, a hack, a shit journalist, a terrible writer. And because of he's been able to rise to prominence by virtue of his class and his connections, he will never be out of a job. He will never be out of money. What is shocking is to prioritize this completely profit-driven move over and above diligence in governing. It's shocking because it's hard to believe that anybody, any human being who has attained the highest office it's possible to attain in this country would be so deeply cavalier and callous about the lives of the citizens which are entrusted to him. I say it's shocking when it's Boris Johnson, it's not surprising. He's marked himself throughout his career, first as a journalist and then subsequently when he entered politics, into a, by this very deep carelessness for the demands of his role. When it came to you know, the comments made about Nazanin, and essentially saying that, you know, well, yes, maybe she was there for reasons which are other than the reasons that she had told the Iranian government. It was a huge spanner in the works when it came to negotiating her release. When he was mayor of London, one of his favorite things to do was just absolutely spunk money on these like white elephant projects, which would go nowhere, meanwhile neglecting the day-to-day demands of running a city like London and addressing the very real, and pressing issues uh which ordinary people were essentially lumbered with he's lazy he's cavalier he's uncaring he's callous but he won an election by a landslide because ultimately the media got together along with naysayers from within the labor party to torpedo the candidacy of somebody who might have done a better job who might have been motivated by values other than greed and self-aggrandizement
0: Ash, I think you've been a little bit unfair there, because what you've done is you've judged Boris Johnson's book before I've read you the blurb, um, (laughs) which I am about to do. What I found quite extraordinary about this story is I didn't know Boris Johnson had written a book about Shakespeare. I don't think anyone did, but it's been on Amazon for ages. It's due to be published 31st of March, 2022. It's called Shakespeare, the Riddle of Genius. And what's amazing I find about this is in the blurb of Boris Johnson, they seem kind of embarrassed that he's the prime minister because they don't mention it. It says, from the inimitable mop-headed New York Times best-selling British journalist and politician, a celebration of the best-known Brit of all time. It's almost like they feel like if they mentioned that he was the prime minister during a pandemic, it would be kind of embarrassing that they're making money off this, presumably not going to be a particularly good book, but let's get to the blurb now. Um, So this is how it's being sold. 400 years after his death, William Shakespeare is more popular than ever. But why? What about Shakespeare has allowed him to stand the test of time? With characteristic curiosity, verve and wit, Boris Johnson sets out to determine whether the bard is indeed all he's cracked up to be. And if so, why and how? He immerses us in the circumstances in which Shakespeare came of age. He explores the endlessly intriguing themes the plays and how they speak to us across the centuries, the illicit sex and the power struggles, the fratricide and matricide, the confused identities and hormonal teenagers, the racism, jealousy, political corruption. Now, Ash, the reason I think you maybe judged this book too quickly is because, you know, to be honest, who is better qualified to write a book about racism, political corruption, hormonal teenagers? people who put out quite a lot without much you know, idea of the consequences. This is Boris Johnson, isn't it?
1: <laughs> but there's the danger of being a literary critic who sees himself in everything that he reads. That's not good literary criticism, Michael. But can I just say, because I do have a real annoyance here, which is I am a Shakespeare nerd. I'm a Shakespeare lover. And I think that there's all sorts of ways to become interested in his works. He was one of the most populist-minded writers of his time. He knew about bums on seats, getting people into theatres, watching these plays. So I don't think that you've got to like have a PhD in English literature and Renaissance history in order to grapple with Shakespeare. However, it pisses me off that here is this know-nothing posho who was a failure at Eton, a failure at Oxford, and continued to fail his way up through the echelons of power and money and prominence, now thinks that he's an expert on Shakespeare because what? He's gonna write the same flippant kind of essay that he's written a million times which is Shakespeare, good, bad, I don't know but Romeo and Juliet were some randy teenagers weren't they? <laughs> <laughs> like It really annoys me that there's actually all sorts of really interesting things that you can say and write about Shakespeare from all sorts of different perspectives and instead what is being inflicted upon us as readers is just this annoying, hooray, Henry, backslapping unserious, dilettante take on the Bard. That pisses me off.
0: So this is a double whammy, Boris Johnson. One, you shouldn't have been writing the book in the first place. You should have been dealing with the pandemic, so we didn't have one of the worst death tolls in the world. Two, if you were going to miss all of those Cobra meetings, at least write something interesting. Right. No, it's a real disappointment on two counts. Let's go on to our next story. This is the goodies section. I mean, every story has baddies and goodies. But anyway, we've got got three good eggs in this one. On a previous show, we talked about how the Palestinian-American supermodel, Bella Hadid, was smeared by the state of Israel for supporting Palestinian rights. Well, it's happened again. Only now, Bella is joined by her sister, Gigi, and the pop star, Dua Leeper. All have recently made Instagram posts supportive of the Palestinian cause and all appeared in this full-page advert in the New York Times. So in this advert is a full-page spread. So you can see Bella, Gigi and Dua and they are superimposed over an image of Hamas rockets. Um, and the text says Hamas calls for a second holocaust. Condemn them now. Then on the right, you can see um, it is quoting some anti Semitic lines from the Hamas Charter. So it's saying because they've supported the Palestinian cause, they now have to condemn Hamas. None of them, by the way, have ever said anything supportive of Hamas. Never. What they have said is things supportive of the Palestinian cause, and now they're being smeared as supporters of hamas who who have a responsibility to condemn them and not only is this you know this, is, this isn't just a reply guy on twitter this is a full page ad in the united states paper of of record from, you know the, the most established newspaper in the world now the ad was placed by the world values network which is run by a right-wing american rabbi and below the image was a, a lengthy bit of text I'm um, a real essay there, um, and it includes the complaints the World Values Network have about what the women have written on social media. I'm just going to go to what, what I think are some of the key bits. So they write: Bella Hadid and Dua Lipa even went so far as including the disgusting libel that Israel, a country with two million Muslim Arab citizens, is engaging in ethnic cleansing. So this is these people are uh, adjacent to Hamas. Responsible for anti Semitism. And it's because they have the temerity to accuse Israel of what they call a disgusting libel and that it's engaging in ethnic cleansing. Now, what they were referencing um, in their Instagram posts was the expulsions, the evictions um, in Sheikh Jarrah. Now, these expulsions are kicking out people from their homes who are Palestinian and they're moving in people who are Jewish. And that's not a coincidence. That's how the law works. If you're uh, a Jewish person, then you can say, oh, before 1948, we held this claim to this bit of land and we can essentially override anyone who currently lives there and kick them out. The same law doesn't apply for Palestinians. So there is a law which is allowing Jews to kick out Palestinians because they're Jews and because they're Palestinians. Now, that is kind of ethnic cleansing, isn't it? Now their point is that oh it can't be ethnic cleansing because there are lots of well he says Muslim Arab citizens which is, I mean the word is Palestinian citizens of Israel because not all Palestinians are, are Muslim. He's saying is it, unless you're killing everyone it can't be ethnic cleansing. Now that's not really how the legal definition works so that one falls down. Another complaint let's go to this one. This one is more ridiculous. Um so th- this is of Bella Hadid and they write. She also maligned Israel as apartheid, even as it is the only country in world history to airlift Africans into freedom and sets the standard for multiracial coexistence. Now, the airlift in question um, is a reference to charter flights in 1991, which took Ethiopian Jews to Israel to escape a civil war. It's kind of cool, Um, fair play. It's somewhat overshadowed by Israel's military support for apartheid South Africa, but we don't need to look to history to fact-check Bella Hadid's claim that Israel is an apartheid state. No, um, we just need to look to reports from Human Rights Watch, reports from Israeli human rights organisations such as Salem and they argue that because Israel has occupied a people for 54 years, because it kicks people out of their homes um, for not being Jewish, and because it controls where Palestinians can and cannot live, um, then the, the phrase apartheid counts, right? And he's now you know, essentially... Libeling And saying, this is ridiculous because they once airlifted people out of Ethiopia. Very terrible argument. Still, you can pay for it to be full page ad in the New York Times. One final quote I'm going to get from this advert. And this is the one that I find particularly disgusting. Um, so the World Values Network writes... Bella, Gigi, and Jua should be aware that six million Jews were annihilated in the Holocaust just seventy five years ago, and the Hamas genocidal charter openly calls for the murder of Jews. Is the ongoing vilification of Jews in Israel on social media perhaps the reason we see Jews being beaten up in Times Square? Now this is a it's a really horrible thing to say anyway, to say that someone standing up for Palestinian rights is essentially responsible for anti-Semitic attacks, which they have nothing to do with. But to say that in a full- page ad, in you know, the world's most famous established newspaper, I think is completely disgusting. It's completely disgusting. The New York Times allowed this ad to be placed. And I mean, the whole thing is is gross. Ash, I want to bring you in on this. And particularly, I mean, I, I've read the text there, but obviously the, the thing that stands out when you would, and originally um, see that advert is the call to condemn Hamas, the picture of mm. these three celebrities in front of images of Hamas rockets. I mean, it is really disgusting, isn't it, to say because these people have spoken out in, in, in favor of Palestinian rights and against Israeli you know, war crimes, essentially, they have to condemn this organization they have absolutely nothing to do with.
1: So I actually think this ad works on two levels and there's a aspect of plausible deniability to the whole thing. So the first level is exactly what you described, which is setting up tenuous connections of responsibility and trying to box these three women into a point where they are implored to condemn Hamas, despite having never offered words of support for Hamas in the first place. And it's trying to set up connections between expressing support, for Palestinian humanity, for civil rights, for Israel to abide by international law, connecting it to support of Hamas, and then, of course, to anti-Semitic racist attacks on Jewish people who live in the diaspora, whether that is in Times Square or in London. All right, so that is the first level that this ad is working on. But the second, when you look at the image and the text placement, what it does is invoke the reader to condemn Gigi, Bella, and you now right so when you look at the image it makes this connection between the three women to hamas and it's almost in conversation with the reader saying condemn these three women now and that's why the image the picture is so prominent and the text is broken up the way that it is because grammatically it has the first meaning you're talking about but the instant impact and the gloss is the second meaning. So I think that one of these things that the ad is doing is that is it's a tacit form of incitement. And I think that it picks on three women deliberately because it plays on these tropes of women being treacherous, of being aligned with terrorism and the jihadist force. And it's a way of inviting a particular kind of hatred and backlash, which I think is inevitable gendered there's a reason why they chose these three women for the image there have been plenty of male celebrities who have spoken out um during this period of conflict uh with the bombardment of gaza why isn't mark ruffalo on there right he's been a prominent and outspoken voice. Well, it's because I think having three very beautiful, very young women plays a certain role of activating, I think, quite a violent and hateful backlash.
0: And because it's intended to be intimidating, right? So if you can evoke a violent backlash, then that's job done because what this ad is intending to do is to disincentivize other celebrities from speaking out and especially other celebrities who who might feel like you know, having frets towards them seem more credible. You know, I, I imagine if you're someone like Jua Lipa, you get a lot more frets than if you're someone like Mark, Mark Ruffalo, which is why, you know, the the cause and effect of this ad might be how the people who placed it potentially want it to be.
1: I think absolutely what this is, is a punishment. It's not a debate of political difference, right? Which is entirely legitimate. To have, I might completely uh, disagree with the point of view of this organization, but it's fun to open up a conversation. You're right. This is about incitement and about intimidation and about inviting enough of a backlash that three young women in the public eye think twice about speaking out in this way again.
0: Oh, I do want to bring up Dua Lipa's response, and um, because it was very good. And um, so Jualipa, this was a post she put on her social media accounts. I utterly reject the false and appalling allegations that were published today. This is the price you pay for defending Palestinian human rights against an Israeli government whose actions in Palestine, both Human Rights Watch and the Israeli Human Rights Group Betzalem accuse of persecution and discrimination. The World Values Network as shamelessly using my name to advance their ugly campaign with falsehoods and blatant misrepresentations of who I am and what I stand for. I stand in solidarity with all <laughs> oppressed people and reject all forms of racism. Very strong statement. Very difficult to argue with, with anything she said there. She could have gone further. She could have said human rights, walk and Bezalem say? Not only are they guilty of persecution and discrimination, but apartheid, but I've got no complaints. Very good um, response from Dua Lipa. Now, as Ash mentioned, um, this wasn't the first time the, I mean, not very convincingly named World Values Network has taken out a full page Ad um, in a US newspaper after celebrities have come out in support of Palestinian rights. So in 2018, Lord cancelled a concert in Tel Aviv. And in response, the World Values Network ran this ad in the Washington Post. Now, in this ad, again, it's very visual. Here you can see Lord's face superimposed over a picture of men running through rubble cradling babies. Um, and then the text of the ad says, Lord joined a global anti Semitic boycott of Israel, but will perform in Russia despite Putin's support for Assad's genocide in Syria. Um, you can see there in the, that was probably slightly too small for you to read. You can see there um, on the right, 21 is young to become a bigot. Oh, incredibly. um, a really horrible, horrible advert to place about a 21-year-old because she stood in support of of human rights for the Palestinian people. As Ash said, a, a common thread you've got here is that this is attacking young women in the press. Also, what you see in those two adverts is all of the arguments used against advocates for Palestinians completely crystallized, concentrated against the Hadid sisters and Jualipa, you've got if you oppose apartheid, you support Hamas. And if you criticize Israel, you support anti-Semitism. Against Lord, you can't criticize the actions of Israel until you criticize every other bad thing happening in the world. And if you criticize Israel without criticizing every other bad thing happening in the world, that means you're anti-Semitic. That's the argument they they put out in the in the Washington Post. There. Obviously neither the Washington Post nor the New York Times should have allowed these adverts to happen. And I hope that, you know, Dewar and the Hadid sisters and Lord boycott anything that those papers do in future because of what they've done to them. Now, Ash, you know, I I want to bring you in on on these arguments that are always used against supporters of of Palestinian rights. Because as you say, I think these adverts work on a level which is to incite threats against these people. At the same time, you are seeing these same arguments they throw out against everyone. If you oppose apartheid, you support Hamas. If you criticise Israel, you support anti-Semitism. You can't criticise Israel unless you criticise every other human rights abuse that is going on in the world. It's all incredibly predictable. I do feel like this time around, it's potentially not working as well as it had in in the past for for people who are, you know, viciously supporting the Israeli government in everything they do.
1: Oh yeah, the shine's coming off the apple for sure. But let's talk about some of these tactics. Obviously, the specific nature of how israel was formed as a state and by who presents problems for when you want to talk about it as a settler colonial endeavor which i personally believe it is you also have to take into account the historic violent persecution and attempted extermination of the jewish people and so what the ideology of zionism does is that it treats as one and the same The belief in the humanity of Jewish people, a belief in their right to living in safety wherever it is they live and to self-determination as a people, it says that those things can only be expressed in an ethno-state that is Israel, right? And so that's how you get this slippage between criticizing an ideology, the ideology of a state its actions as a settler colonial state and then this notion that it is anti-semitic at all to talk about the ideology the action and the colonial project so that's one tactic which has been used again and again and i think is more difficult to maintain in the face of these images being broadcast around the world where we can really see what's happening and then you've got this um debate this rhetorical flourish that you see which is unless you speak out about x y and z whether it's um you know the Uyghurs or Syria or Boko Haram then you are morally inconsistent and therefore you cannot you must not talk about Israel and Palestine and if you do you must be uh, implicitly motivated by a kind of anti-Semitism. And that's why you're talking about this and not other things. Now, one, that's a ridiculous argument. It's a completely ridiculous argument because, one, when people do speak out about these other things, often it doesn't garner very much attention and not as much. And two, well, there is something different about the Israel-Palestine conflict, and that's because we as Britain, or they as America, have sold millions and billions worth of weapons to this country which are now being used against the civilian occupation in maintaining the world's longest running occupation all right that is what is different about this conflict but these lines and arguments actually they had a life before and you actually saw them being mobilized in defense of apartheid South Africa so one of the things that was often said in response to people who are saying apartheid is a moral abomination, it is a stain on our collective humanity and we must not only call it out, but participate in a movement of boycott, divestment and sanctions, you often had people go, oh, well, you don't care about um, the human rights abuses in other African countries. So why are you singling out South Africa? Again, this is an old move, an old rhetorical gesture, and it's being used once more in support of an apartheid state, the state of Israel. And I think that this is something which, again, is harder to maintain, because you can't have it both ways. You can't have what I believe is true, which is that it is anti-Semitic to align all Jewish people with the state of Israel, hold one collectively responsible for the other and say that that is anti-Semitic. That's racism and that's wrong. And also at the same time, say, but any attempt to criticize the state of Israel how it was founded, what it does, the continuing occupation, the projects of ethnic cleansing, the maintaining and deepening of an apartheid system within the borders of Israel itself, that that is also anti-Semitic. Because then, in order to hold that line, one, it requires you to de- deny the evidence before your very eyes, to reject out of hand the judgment of Human Rights Watch and B'Tselem. Um, But two, it forces you into a position of doing an anti-Semitism yourself, where you go, oh, I can't criticize Israel because that means I'm criticizing all Jewish people, that I'm partaking in an act of racism against them. So I can't have it both ways. And I think more and more people are beginning to see that.
0: Really well put. A very good point to to close that that segment on. Um, we're going to go on to Jeffrey Epstein. Much of the official narrative around the convicted paedophile, Jeffrey Epstein doesn't quite stack up. But it's the official story around his death that is perhaps the most fishy. Epstein was the most high profile prisoner on Earth with potentially many secrets about the world's most powerful people. However, locked away in the best funded prison system in the world, Epstein, in August 2019, was still able to hang himself. Now, a big element of the supposed mishaps that led to Epstein's death involved two prison guards, uh, Tova Noel and Michael Thomas. Now nova and Thomas was supposed to check on Epstein every thirty minutes. However, they instead slept and browsed the internet. They then went on to falsify prison records to hide the fact they had failed to check on Epstein for a period of over two hours. So they were guiding or guarding, sorry, guarding the most high profile prisoner on earth to stop him killing himself because this is a guy, you know, we really want to see him have his day in court. They fall asleep, they browse the internet, they don't check on him whoopsie-daisy, is dead. Now, in a development that will surprise no one, these two guards, who didn't do their job very well, and then falsified records, have been spared jail time in a deal with federal, federal prosecutors. This is a story in the Associated Press. Um, we can go to the content of the article because the AP report that as part of the deal with prosecutors, they will enter into a deferred prosecution agreement with the Justice Department and will serve no time behind bars. Noel and Thomas would instead be subjected to supervised release, would be required to complete 100 hours of community service and would be required to fully cooperate with an ongoing probe by the Justice Department's Inspector General the two have admitted that they willfully and knowingly completed materially false count and round slips regarding required count and rounds in the housing unit where Epstein was being held. So they falsified the documents that said, we've we've done the round, we've we've visited the prisoners. They said they'd done it. They hadn't done it. So what's happened here? They said, oh, you know, if if you work with us, you don't have to go to prison for this, even though it led to the death of the world's most high-profile prisoner, and it would have actually been in the interest of lots of people to have you know, a, a proper case. Now, not everyone is happy with this result. According to AP, Senator Ben Sass, who is a Republican member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, called the deal unacceptable and said the public deserves to see a report detailing the prison agency's failures. 100 hours of community service is a joke. This isn't traffic court, Sass said in a statement. The leader of an international ch- child sex trafficking ring escaped justice. His co-conspirators had their secrets go to the grave with him, and these guards are going to be picking up trash on the side of the road. Now, of course, it, it's not inconceivable that this was all a cock-up. The article goes on to say that these were two members of staff who were incredibly overworked. They'd been forced, essentially, to do lots of overtime. One of them had another job. You know, I I, I don't envy um these people i'm also not really in favor of people going to jail because they fell asleep on the job because they've been worked too hard by their bosses you know i'm not saying these people should have um should be locked up and, and have the key thrown away but the broader context of the death and the circumstances around it mean i'm not particularly willing to take this deal at face value now, let's go through the quick timeline of why I'm not necessarily convinced um, that all is above board when it comes to this deal and why, I mean, there's lots of reasons to be suspicious when it comes to the suicide of Jeffrey Epstein. This is not me being particularly tinfoil hat. The majority of Americans believe this was not a suicide. It's quite mainstream. Now so let's, let's go through why everyone thinks this. So on the 6th of July, 2019, in the midst of the Me Too scandal, Epstein was arrested for multiple counts of sex trafficking minors. You probably know that part of the story. Now, these were the same crimes he had been let off lightly for a decade earlier. He managed to get amazing um, deals with with federal prosecutors, state prosecutors in in, in Florida. Um, They were essentially swept under the rug. He did a a few months in a prison where he essentially um, got to hang out in his own house. The whole thing's completely ridiculous. But in the midst of the Me Too scandal, he gets arrested, he goes to proper prison, and now the world's eyes are are, are watching. They can't just sweep it under the rug. A year before that arrest, and why many people were worried that Epstein was going to get killed in jail, is because he knew lots of secrets about very powerful people. Indeed, in the summer of 2018, Epstein told a New York Times journalist he had dirt on multiple powerful people. People. So, this is in his own words, he got lots of dirt on lots of powerful people. Then, that's why everyone's like, you should, you know, make sure you watch this guy carefully because we want to know this dirt. We don't want him to go to his grave with all of this dirt on these powerful people who've potentially done some really hideous, horrendous things. Then, a month before his uh, supposed suicide um, in jail, he was found injured after allegedly being strangled by his cellmate, the multiple murder and drug conspiracy suspect, Nicholas Tartaglioni. So you've got someone who is, we know, who's got lots and lots of very interesting information that would be useful to law enforcement about lots of powerful people. Who do they put him in jail with? Someone who is suspected of multiple murder and drug conspiracy. Now this sounds to me, I mean, that's that's what people who are involved in organised crime go to prison for, right? Multiple murder and drug conspiracy charges. Nicholas Tartaglioni. Uh, it, it sounds a bit ridiculous that you you put him in, in jail with that guy if you don't want the guy to die. Now, the prison authorities have, I don't want to smear Tartaglione, the, the, the prison authorities have cleared him, um, and they say Epstein himself was responsible for his injuries. Again, you can make up your own mind if that's particularly plausible. However, that same month, lawyers representing Epstein's victims, they weren't convinced either, they told the Sun that they were worried Epstein would be killed before his case would come to trial. Now, it was at this point, after he'd been found um, strangled either by himself or his his cellmate, um, it was at this point that Epstein was put on suicide watch, but following a psychiatric examination, he was removed from 24-hour surveillance after just six days. Um, then, after being taken off suicide watch, Epstein was placed in the security housing unit. Um, the jail had informed the Justice Department that he would have a cellmate because that's one way that you can stop people killing themselves, and that a guard would look into the cell every 30 minutes. He was given no cellmate, and you already know the guards did not check him every 30 minutes. That's what that AP story was about. They've they're not going to jail even though they didn't look at him every 30 minutes and they lied to say they did. Now, this is all looking pretty suspicious. It's all very, very circumstantial, though. The biggest clincher for me, and what wasn't mentioned in that AP story, is that outside Epstein's cell. So uh, the guards were asleep and maybe they were overworked. Maybe that's why they were asleep. But outside the cell, there were three cameras. Two of them were broken with no explanation as to why they were broken. And the third has footage that was unusable. So you've got a situation where we are supposed to believe that the guy with the most dirt on the world's rich and powerful of sort of, you know, anyone you can think of Who, who knows more than Jeffrey Epstein when it comes to compromising material be hard to to name many people he's in jail in new york you know it's not some backwater place right and he manages to kill himself with no guards checking him and with a load of broken cctv cameras nearby as i say i don't want these guards to go to prison the guards that i started this story with at the same time the fact that they've got this deal seems quite convenient for everyone involved ash am i being conspiratorial or do you see the same gaps in the official narrative that i do
1: i don't see so much gaps in the official narrative as a grand canyon of murder (laughs) (laughs) that's what i see um look People are free to make up their minds however they want. But I've always been somewhat wary of that truism that cock-up is always more likely than conspiracy. Because sometimes, actually, it's not. In order to make this plausibly a suicide, that could happen despite suicide watch, despite the fact that he was supposed to be assigned a cellmate, despite the fact that there were supposed to be three cameras trained on his cell at all times, well, that means a chain of causality which is so infinitesimally improbable that I can't get my head around it because I can imagine one of these cock-ups happening, you know, the guards, you know, scrolling on their phones or doing whatever, being so tired that they couldn't check on him. But that plus the fact that he hadn't been assigned the cellmate that he was supposed to have, hmm. I could imagine um, one of the cameras not working, just being broken by sheer chance, but all three cameras. So for all these things to line up neatly, like ducks in a row, and then Jeffrey Epstein uh, taking his life without any coercion, pressure or outside interference... I find it difficult to get my head around. And if this wants to, you know, be received by Guido or the Daily Mail as evidence of the tinfoil-hatted conspiracist left, go for it. But I do not think that this man made up his own mind to kill himself without any help.
0: Often a, a strong argument against the conspiracy theories is Occam's razor. You know, potentially the simplest answer is the correct one. The problem in this case is that the simplest. Hard, the simplest like explanation is he was murdered because the explanation that it was just cock up, cock up after cock up after cock up after cock up after cock up that's now more improbable. It's a more complicated explanation than that he had some dirt on powerful people and the powerful people arranged it so that he would have no chance to reveal that dirt. Like Occam's Razor says, Epstein murdered. Maybe we'll never know. Ash Sarkar, it's been an absolute pleasure as always.
1: My favourite bit of the week. I say this every week, but doesn't make it any less true.
0: <laughs> I have no doubt. Mine too. Although I, I'm, my three favourite days of the week with my three brilliant co-hosts. I'll be back on Wednesday um, for another edition of Tisky Sour. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com
1: support.